Under pressure, it's how you feel sometimes when you're writing all of those grants. It's true. Grants can be stressful. Fixed deadlines, unanswered emails, crazy application portals. Mm -hmm. How about unrealistic expectations from people who have no idea how the process works? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Ask us how we know. Not addressing these stressors can lead to serious burnout. But the D.H. Leonard Consulting Team doesn't believe that needs to be the case. They can help you through the entire grant life cycle, from grant readiness to grant management. If there's a part of grant seeking that is stressing you out, reach out to dhleonardconsulting.com to let them help take the stress out of grants. Dun, 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 dun. Hello there, I'm Kimberly Hayes Day Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to Season 5 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We're here to help you make sense of the complex world of grant writing and fundraising, whether you work for a nonprofit, local government, or are a consultant who serves them. On Fundraising Heyday, we will cover the how-to, but we also want to explore the whys of things, including poking the grisly, grouchy bear of inequity that roams the world of philanthropy. And as always, we're doing this every two weeks with the help of experts in the field and our particular brand of entertainment. There may have been a little bit of Britney Spears dancing going on before we got started this morning. I will um, neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> yeah, so that's, it, as usual, it, our particular brand includes songs, cheesy sound effects, and an occasional y'all, because learning does not have to be boring. That's our story, and we're sticking to it. This podcast is brought to you by our Season 5 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. This is a serious podcast for serious people who are serious about fundraising and grant writing. If you're a loyal listener, thank you, and you know that I am lying. (laughs) Making positive change in the world through raising money and securing grants is a deep and complex undertaking, but without generous sprinkles of joy and levity and genuine human connection along the way, where would we be? Where would you be, Amanda, for example, if there were no sparkly things? I would not be in my happy place as I'm currently wearing my beautiful sparkly earrings. And you know, if you don't have a little glitter in your life, is it really worth living? Um, now, today we have a guest who also adds laughter and cheer to his work as an expert fundraising consultant and trainer for arts and cultural organizations. And I love that about him. That's right. Today's special guest is David Burgess, Director of Apollo Fundraising. 
Prior to setting up Apollo Fundraising, he helped to raise philanthropic support for a range of arts organizations, and that's organizations spelled with an S, okay, because we're going international today, where he secured five- and six-figure gifts from trusts for revenue appeals and capital projects. He also increased individual and legacy giving while at English Touring Opera. David moved into consultancy in February 2015, initially as a fundraising consultant and trainer with the Management Center before founding Apollo Fundraising in the spring of 2016. His areas of expertise include writing fundraising strategies, developing individual giving programs. Again, that's M-M-E-S, okay? Because we're not playing, y'all. Securing funding from trusts, foundations, and statutory sources, and providing training for fundraisers at all stages of their career. In 2016, he was named as one of the UK's top 25 fundraisers under 35 by Civil Society's Fundraising Magazine. David is a regular speaker at conferences both in the UK and internationally. He's a member of the Institute of Fundraising Cultural Sector Network's Professional Development Subcommittee and a Charity Connect champion. He does a lot of things, yes. So welcome, David. (laughs) Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Um, you've caught me in the middle of a storm as well. I didn't mention this uh, in the intro. We've got Storm Eunice blowing around us as well. So if you Eunice? Loud... Yeah. So, sounds old and crotchety. Yeah. <laughs> it's, they've, they've given a really timid name to what's supposedly the worst storm we've had here for 30 years. Oh, my um, gosh. Oh well, please be safe. And um, we'll, we'll just – you if you suddenly disappear and are replaced by a fuzzy gray screen, we'll know what to do. And we wish you good luck and Godspeed. And Hunger fingers down. crossed I get back from Oz quickly just by clicking my, clicking my heels together. That's that's the thought. That's the thought. Eunice, well, come on, Eunice. Let's let's calm down. Let's move on. Um, okay, so giant storms notwithstanding, as we're wont to do on this podcast, Amanda and I have prepared a grueling series of questions for you, David. Uh, gird yourself, okay? <laughs> Here comes the first one. So we know a lot about things that you've done and, and are very impressive things you've accomplished in the world of fundraising training, consultancy, and coaching. But what is your twisted tale of how you became a fundraiser and why did you specialize in arts and culture funding? Um, so I fell into fundraising, like I think a lot of people, um, certainly in the arts and culture side. Uh, so I, I did a music degree. I'm a trumpet player occasional piano player, um, but realized I was never going to be good enough to make a career out of performing or composing music or being an academic or or any of that. But I realized I really liked the bits behind the scenes. I loved being part of putting on concerts or or shows or productions. So I I started to see, well, what careers are there off stage? Um, So I thought I wanted to be an orchestra manager. I thought I wanted to be bossing musicians around, um, <laughs> but I, I got an internship in the education and outreach department of an orchestra uh, here in the UK, up in Manchester. Um, and and after a couple of months of being there, a job came up in their fundraising team, and partly because I was skint and needed money, and partly because I wanted to spend more time in the organisation, I, I got chatting to the CEO and said, Look, "Is this something I could apply for?" Um, and do alongside the internship and actually they created a a sort of 
special role. So they went out to recruit someone else, but they let me do, I think it was two or three days a week fundraising to try and raise money for the education projects I was delivering through the internship. Uh, And I I just loved it. I loved the sort of logic-y, puzzle-solving-y type of researching funders, of matching their aims to projects. I loved the creative side of trying to get square projects to fit in circle shaped grant funder aims and and all the rest of it um so i decided that's what i wanted to to do um i didn't really know much about the different disciplines i started with grants grants funding grants fundraising because that was the the first place there was a job um i went to work for a theater where i got to do a bit of grants and a bit of individual giving um before moving down to to glyndebourne to be their head of grants and head of trusts and foundations for a couple of years and before going on to be a head of fundraising for an opera company a touring opera company um, after that but it was it was one of those things I always said I was never going to do as a as a kid when I was doing my work experience at school I said I'm not I'm not working in arts administration and that's where I ended up Uh, I always said I was never going to be a freelancer I was never going to be a consultant and yet here we are I've been coming close to six years of working on my own never say never huh that's right this is yeah this this podcast is brought to you by never say never because <laughs> yeah. there you are i've given up making plans now there's no, no there's... just <laughs> <laughs> but don't don't feel bad most of us as you probably know by now we we most of us in this profession do sort of slide or fall into it um through no fault our, of our own through no fault <laughs> of our own. <laughs> absolutely and here we are yeah. Well, I have to tell you, any kind of fundraising, whether it's grants or events or donors, anything to do with the arts and cultures, to me seems a very different realm than doing that for, say, education or health and human services. Because um, a, a lot of the grants and a lot of the organizations I work with are, you know, it's very much like, hey, we're providing doctor care to these many people. We've got all of these outcomes. We've got these things. And I, I would think that would be harder to write. Like we all know the arts are good. I appreciate good music. I love going to a good play, but having to articulate all of that, I would think is almost a rare and special gift to be able to do that. So I'm curious what your, you find are the differences between fundraising techniques for your field versus others. It's weird, isn't it? Because in the arts and culture sector, they'll tell you that fundraising for other causes is easier than fundraising for arts and culture. And I speak to a lot of fundraisers in other places saying, God, you've got it really easy in, in the arts and culture world. And I think everyone likes to, they like to focus on, on how their thing is, is harder. And depending yeah. on whether I'm trying to antagonise fundraisers in the wider sector or cultural fundraisers will depend on which argument I pick. Um, because, I mean, the principles of it are the same. You know, the, the, the sort of nuts and bolts uh, are the same across the disciplines. I guess where arts and culture differs slightly, and, and I guess it's a, it's a couple of ways. So the people who care about your cause walk through the door. Like they come to you. You don't have to spend huge amounts of money on TV campaigns, cold letter drops, billboards, because you've got a warm audience on your doorstep who are proactively saying, we love what you do. That's true. So... So it gives you that head start in some ways. Yeah, you, and and for, particularly for organisations that sell tickets or keep track of who's coming to see it, 
you can see where that really strong connection is. Who are those people that that will come and see anything you put on? Who are the people who will only come and hear plinky plonky 18th century harpsichord music? Who are the people <laughs> who love paintings that don't look anything like they're supposed to? A picture of a horse that looks like a tin of beans. You get that yeah. sense from the data of, of where people's passions are. I guess the sort of link to that, though, is you get a much closer gap between what we might call in other parts of the sector your, your beneficiaries and your donors. So where for a lot of sectors, those are very distinct groups and there's quite a bit of distance between them. In the cultural sector, they're, they're often one and the same. So it, fundraising sort of becomes a, another branch of your audience development work. So that you're not going to get people, or it's very rare that you're going to get people who have no interest in your art form or don't come and see your shows to give, certainly for for individuals. So they've got that vested interest. And I'm not going to go quite as far as saying it's a selfishness, but they have a vested interest in you delivering the work because it's yeah. it's from that that they're drawing that pleasure. So you mentioned that thing of trying to make the case to to supporters actually in some ways you're preaching to the converted because they already know how important your work is because of the pleasure they derive from it mm-hmm. and they can imagine uh, what their life would be if they didn't have access to that so you've, you've got that starting point when you start telling stories either about the things that they're going to benefit from we want to do this amazing production just imagine what it's going to be like sitting in the theater as the curtain comes up on this little known plinky plonky opera and and they can connect to that or connecting them to their own first experiences and how important it was for them to be able to to see live performance at a young age and how that's set them on this journey that's given them so much joy and pleasure during their life so david my next question um veering into the the fun fun world of pandemic response because how could it not for these kinds of discussions Uh, certainly in the u.s i saw a lot of organizations that related to arts and cultural organizations um, decimated in terms of funding right because they couldn't sell those tickets and couldn't um, um, have those shows but then doing some incredibly creative and bold things online, serenading emergency workers, what have you. I was just wondering, what has been the most surprising response that you saw during the pandemic to um, from, from arts and cultural organizations, maybe more related to fundraising too, um, any partnerships or different kinds of appeals or something? I think what was really interesting was the way that the tone of fundraising messages changed for arts and cultural organisations going into the pandemic, and I think in a good way. So, I mean, this sort of links back to to the previous question and my answer there, because one of the dangers that cultural organisations have when when their supporters have a vested interest is it, it leads them down this path of asking in quite a transactional way. So membership schemes, patron schemes have been a a key driver for individual giving for cultural organisations where you're you're sort of conditioned to to believe that if I give money, I'm going to get something back and the value of what I get back is going to be more than the value to me of the donation. It, It is a value for money judgment we're asking people to make. And it is that sort of Pavlovian response that if we want to ask people for more money, 
they then associate it with, well, that means I'm going to get more in return. I'm going to get better benefits in return. Mm-hmm. So certainly here in the UK, cultural organisations have been not great, certainly up until the pandemic, of being vulnerable. You know, they, they want to paint this picture that everything is fine. When actually you've got a bunch of people who are saying, we love what you do, we want to help you do more of that, who are not looking for that transactional relationship. And what the pandemic did was it took a lot of that transactional stuff away. All of the benefits that organisations would normally offer, like free or discounted tickets or access to hospitality rooms or private views or any of that kind of thing, disappeared. They, They didn't have that card to play. Connected to the fact that they were in a real difficult position as you say most of them lost not only ticket income or or um, sort of those entry fees but in the uk there's been a lot of work to diversifying income so a lot of cultural organizations have been building up their commercial uh, and their, their sort of hires and and other sources of, of of earned income which disappeared as well and that there is a sort of bitter irony that the ones who had been best at diversifying pre-pandemic actually in many ways ended up being worse hit wow because just a much bigger number of their income streams went at the same time and they were their relationship with other funders was was very different to those who were getting sort of 50 60 percent of their funding from the same source so it forced them into this this mode of, of talking with that vulnerability talking with that honesty of what the real picture looked like and drawing on that sense of community and I think what was really pleasing to see was the response to that, because we've seen, certainly going back to 2020, we saw organisations make their annual fundraising target in three months off the back, which is a really um, really carefully worded, really open, really honest appeal to their supporters saying, actually, we really need you. And if you valued us coming into the pandemic and you want us to still be here when we come out the other side of this, we need your help today. And it's been really pleasing, A, to see organisations go down that route and then to see donors respond. The challenge now is how do organisations continue with that when when that very visceral threat to their existence isn't there? Can they continue to use that vulnerability, that honesty, that much more philanthropic way of connecting? I'm not asking you to give because you're going to get a massive packet of, a package of benefits in return. I'm asking you to to give because you care and, and we, we're trying to achieve the same things. You care about what we're trying to do. So I really hope that does continue, not necessarily for everything, but at least organisations are more more open to that way of talking. In, in terms of grants, we were, I guess, quite lucky as a sector. So while some did close down and some did change their focus, uh, we saw a lot of funders saying, actually, this is the time now for us to to just step away from restricted grants. We're going to convert our restricted grants into unrestricted. Um, We're going to drop the reporting requirements because we understand you're not able to deliver. So if we've given you a grant coming into 2020, just use it wherever you need it. Keep yourselves going. Um, And and that sort of greater sense of trust in organisations to use that money well. Isn't that such a beautiful thing? <laughs> and they've already done it once. So I'm, I just want to say, y'all, you know, you could keep doing that, right? If you <laughs> already trust the nonprofits and you, I mean, do we have to go back to restricted funding? Yeah. Well, it's, it, that is going to be interesting, though, because the way mm-hmm. grant funders made that work 
was to say, well, we're going to focus on the people we funded already. That's true. And I think there is this bit that in our in our sort of clamour for unrestricted trust-based funding, actually the, the flip side of that is actually if, if organisations haven't got anything else, you're trusting them to trust the organisation, that trust has got to be based on something. And this is what we found when we did, uh, we did a grant funding exercise as part of the, the Trust Summit back in 2020. And we found when you strip out all of that criteria, when you strip it back to say, just use the money where it's needed most, those decision makers have still got to find something to hang that on. And I can see if, if that continues, all it does is make grant funders in quite a closed shop. Whereas if, if you're in there already, great. Which, again, is going to favour those large organisations. It's going to favour people who've been doing this a long time. It's going to favour people who can play the system. It's going to favour people with those personal connections to grant funders. Which, in some ways, takes us away from what we're what we're calling on grant funders to do in terms of being more equitable, being um, more open to addressing those organisations that have been traditionally underfunded by uh, by grant-making bodies. So there is going to be a balance there. And already we're seeing funders who are saying, actually, this is the time. Now, having done that for two years, before we commit to these changes, we need a period of reflection. We need to evaluate to see, actually, how did that work? What's that look like going forward? And again, there is that flip side now that if lots of grant funders all take that decision at the same time and say, we're just going to close down for three months while we try and work this out. Again, just at the time when organisations are starting to get back on their feet, that emergency funding's already run out. Again, there is that chance that we're going to see lots of funders saying, just just bear with us because rate of change is slow. I think that's a, that's a very interesting point about eliminating lots of those boundaries can actually be more exclusionary. But I would also say it wasn't a walk in the park before the pandemic for smaller organizations, no. particularly around grant funding. So I, I I hear your points, but I'm also thinking about when there were organizations, and Amanda and I, and, and, and for folks who are listening in, oh, thank you for listening again, first of all, but you know, we tend to rant about this. So this is not going to be a rant, but those kinds of extreme restricted practices were also excluding um, small organizations. And certainly in the United States, they were excluding um, a lot of organizations run by black people, people of color, um, Native American agencies, all those kinds of things left out in the cold because they could not play that game. Yeah. So I just, I just feel like it can't be that hard to get it together, but um, most grant making foundation, not all, most certainly in the sector where I'm familiar are not known for like super nimble, innovative, really (laughs) fast responses, as opposed to individual donors, which this is a public service announcement to everyone. If you're a grant writer and think this doesn't apply to you, you need to think again, because those same skills that are used to communicate and write in a compelling grant fashion can also Mm -hmm. translate into, as David's career has illustrated, translate into crafting really thoughtful responses and coaching others to do that. So I, as a former and recovering development director, I do see those things going hand in hand. And I just also wanted to, um, I wanted to call that out. Yeah. But, uh, and well, I, oh, go I, ahead, David. I think, I think that distinction between grants and individuals is interesting because certainly here in the UK, you get a real overlap. So because of the way our ah. tax incentive works, 
Interesting. If, if you know, so basically, basically in, in the UK, the tax benefit goes to the charity rather than the donor through what's called gift aid. So if a donor knows they're going to be giving roughly the same amount of money away each year, then setting up a, a trust or a foundation or a grant-making body can be quite a tax-efficient way of doing that because that foundation is able to claim the, the tax benefit back. It means they can give more money away. So they, the individual makes the donation to their own foundation. That foundation claims the tax benefit back from, um, from the tax man and it increases by 25% the amount that they can they can donate. So it gives them that structure. It gives them that tax benefit. So you do see uh, individuals who look like trusts. Um, you see quite a few trusts and foundations that look like, uh, sorry, companies that look like trusts and foundations as well. Interesting. But it, it means there is that that blurred line. And, and some of them, uh, some of the more sort of strategic grant makers, I think, are really invested in those conversations about equality about how do we move the sector forward how do we make grant giving as a as a function much more uh, much more inclusive whereas for those who are purely using it as a vehicle for their own philanthropy they're not always they don't always see themselves as part of that same ecosystem that's that same um, that same sector it, it, for them having a fun, uh, having a foundation is purely because their accountant told it told them it was the most tax efficient way to to do it and they see themselves as being quite independent. I'm thinking maybe the U S equivalent would be donor advised mm-hmm. funds. And forgive me if I'm talking about the same thing as you just described, but it seems like where you can, where you can, you, the donor, you can set that fund up either through a community foundation or a commercial institution and you get the immediate tax break for the full amount donated, but there are no stipulations about how the money is distributed, which is a source for another rant um, in another <laughs> podcast. Um, but I'm glad to see, too, that there there are – I mean, it's always gratifying to hear people talk about, yes, I do see movement. There are people who in the in the on the giving side of the table that are really taking this into consideration. That's heartening. Well, and here's a, a third rant for you, and I hadn't really – We're being much. really good today. I, oh, we're on it. <laughs> I, I think I'm, dr- I'm drinking this herbal tea, and I wonder if it's like a mild sedative or something. I don't know. <laughs> this well, is the and, new mellow me. I don't know. I, I can rant if you want. <laughs> oh, honey. Honey, I just – have you met me? No. I, I mean, really. I can – we don't – yeah. We can start talking about degree requirements in job descriptions, and that will keep me going for about <laughs> half an hour. Or how about, or we could always, we'll put this on the back burner, but there's always the, can you please put the salary requirements? Um, can you please, can y'all just put that in your, you know, can you, can we do that? Let's don't make it mysterious. But anyway, Amanda, I'm sorry. Yes. You probably had something actually directly related to our topic at hand. Oh no, but I feel you on both of those things. Uh, so that's good stuff too. No, and I hadn't really thought about this until you mentioned it, David. And I started counting in my head. You'd mentioned about some of these funders that have decided to take this pause to reevaluate. And um, I have one client that three of their largest grant funders that they typically get funds from every year for years now um, have all done the we're pausing. We're not sure when we're going to reopen. And um, luckily, we had a really successful grant period um, a few months ago. So they're going to survive without these funders if it takes them a year or so. So they're going to be okay, but only because of that. Mm -hmm. And you're right. There are more and more funders just after the pandemic, after all that money came out quickly that now everybody's like, "Eh, okay, we need to think about it. And I get that 
things need to change. They're only going to improve if people do think about it. But you're right. If everybody suddenly takes this big pause altogether, then basically everybody's right back to where we started, you know, when the pandemic first hit of great. Now nobody has any money anymore. What are we going to do? You know? So um, yeah, please funders don't all take that pause at the same time. You know, it just also kind of feels like a, um, okay, the tea's not working. So it also, (laughs) it also (laughs) makes me think about the whole um, anti-racist movement in the United States and full disclosure, y'all can't see me. I am white. And it's easy for a lot of white people to say it's been so much I've tried and I am going to take a break. But if in the United States, if you are black, you cannot take a break. If you are brown, you cannot take a break. If you are an immigrant, you can't take a break. And I'm just drawing that parallel simply because of the way you look or the color of your skin. You can't do that. And I'm just drawing that parallel between funders going, well, we're just going to kick back and we're going to take some time and we'll get back to you. Meanwhile, uh, Amanda's clients like, hey, so all these people with diabetes, I guess we'll just tell them to take a break on their medication. Like, yeah. don't eat any candy for a little while and then we'll get back to you. Everything will be okay. Yeah, Whatever. I'm just, I'm just, I'm like, yeah, I got your pause. I wish I could take a pause, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling bitter now, so let's just move on. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't believe I'm about to try and make a flip side argument to this, particularly when you've linked oh, it to it, because oh, this is, this is oh. most definitely going to get me cancelled. Oh, my. But in, in the same way, I think a lot of our charities are needing that break as well, and needing that time to reflect, because we know what's coming next isn't going to look like what it's been over the last two years, isn't going to be what it was like before that. So... I, I do have some sympathy, and again, particularly in the UK, where a lot of grant funding bodies share the same um, legal structure, legal obligations as mm-hmm. delivery charities. So they've got trustees who are legally responsible for um, making sure the funds are used well and for ach- achieving that aim. So there is that pressure on them to say, actually, we there, there is pressure on us to make sure we're doing the right thing. So I think there is that argument, if, is, why should it be okay for our charities to say, actually, we need to now just completely rethink how we move forward if we don't allow that same, um, that same sort of grace period to funders? I can't believe I tried to argue against the... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly <laughs> picking up what you're putting down, but I applaud your right to say it. Well, I, and, but I think... I think it's Amanda the peacemaker. Amanda the peacemaker. I'm going to help out here. No, well, I mean, every organization at every so often needs to sit back and think about: Are we still doing it the best way? And I absolutely applaud them for considering that, but not to the detriment of suddenly everybody's throwing on the brakes. And it's you know, it's not just hey, we're taking a pause for a month. Some of these agencies you know, it's like six months have gone by and it's when you ask, they're like, yeah, we still don't know yet, you know, and as nonprofits, even if we're assessing and wanting to bring in new programs, you don't get to stop serving the people you're serving no. going, okay, people, people don't yeah. stop having diabetes or no, can- you cancer or, you know, if dogs don't stop, um, being out in the streets or not adopt or whatever rivers don't stop getting polluted just because it's been a tough time and you need a break. Yeah, there's going to be a balance. Yes. Yeah. I'm here for the balanced approach. I'm here for the balanced yes. approach. There we go. All right. Okay. Now that all the rants are over, <laughs> oh, let's talk about direct oh, mail. <laughs> oh, come on. 
No, so um, here in the U.S., donors still respond very well to direct mail, even though people try to tell us direct mail is dead. We, uh, the numbers argue that they are wrong. Um, so direct mail is still working. Online giving is starting to grow. Um, but pretty much everybody seems to hate phone calls when it comes to calling for my. And I know when I get that, I love my university where I went to school. But when I see that area code come up, I'm like, <laughs> yep, <laughs> not today. Um, so I'm curious, um, what are some of the most popular giving methods for the organization's donors that you work and consult with? So I had a great story from a theater here in London that hadn't really done much telephone stuff before, but managed to launch a a, a big campaign back in 2020. And three, uh, sorry, two thirds of the amount they raised came from their artistic director picking up the phone wow. to really? their their previous sort of major donors and, and oh, people that were oh. really sort of known to the organization. So not cold calls. So not cold calls. Okay. Okay. But, okay. but using sure. the phone where previously they might've just sent an email or, or a letter right. that said, actually, we've just got to get in front of those people. And in, in a way where we can have that genuine dialogue. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of that cold calling, I mean, I think some arts and culture organizations have done it in the past here. They've had reasonable levels of success, but it's not, again, it comes back to that point that you already know who you're, uh, who the people are that are most likely to support your work anyway. So unless you can really sort of bring home those wider benefits to the community, so perhaps focusing on your education work or the outreach side of your work, then then actually you're better off spending that time getting to know the people who've already put their hands up and said, I love what you do. So beyond that, I mean, yeah, it's online channels that we're seeing people really having to invest in because again people haven't been able to do sort of cash or donation boxes or things like that so there's a sort of frantic scurry i think at the moment particularly again for venues based organizations who are saying you know that donation box in the in the corner that just used to gather dust and the occasional um bit of loose change we actually that's going to raise even less than it did before. So now we need to look at contactless donation points and we need to look at how we mm-hmm. uh, respond to the fact that people just aren't carrying that cash anymore. Um, people looking at how they can take donations through their websites and directing people there. I think there's still a gap though. I mean, people are, are putting these things on their website. I, I'm not sure there's still that joined up approach to saying, well, how are you going to get people there? There is this mindset that if we put it on the website, people will find it. They'll see that donate button and, and magically all those people who only exist on the internet will will come and give us we'll money. Find all the, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no. Um, so there, there, I think there's still a bit of work to be done to say, actually, where does this fit in? Where is that journey? Um, and stopping scrabbling over the next new shiny thing. Mm-hmm. You mean you're not advising people to get to start TikTok accounts for their arts and cultural organizations? I guess it depends on the audience. So um, Black Country Living Museum in the UK is apparently doing really well on TikTok. Um, that is no, those are not two things I would have put together in the same sentence. But they, they've been absolutely living. smashing it. Um, okay. I, don't know, I, I haven't seen the music in a, in a fundraising sense, but they've got a massive following and have certainly from the cultural organizations here that I've seen, they, they've just found a niche for it and, and have been able to, to build an audience and build content that people want to engage with. 
I'm, who was ahead. that museum? Kimberly, do you remember? It's I was been a just couple, gonna, we just had a mind ago. meld. It's a mind meld. Cause I was like, there's that. On there, Twitter. Wasn't it the Cowboy Museum yes. that they let oh. the, who was, was it the security guard took over Twitter for a couple of weeks? I that think. was funny. That was good. It was I mean, it was Twitter gold. Like, I mean, I'm like, I would never have followed a cowboy museum, but I did. I tuned in to see what this gentleman had to say about the different exhibits, what his mom thought about the exhibits. It was was fabulous. And I wonder, I'm curious if that ended up in some donations that they never would have gotten otherwise. I can't imagine. That platform for a span of weeks. I don't know. I was actually going down the road. I, I hear you for the Cowboy Museum. That was that was funny. But I follow a couple of several museums. I have an interest in um, uh, things to do with the Middle Ages, certain things to do with the Middle Ages and the more creative pursuits I have. I'm not a reenactor and I don't work for a Renaissance Festival. Let me be clear. But <laughs> I um, Medieval manuscripts, marginalia. But there are a couple of museums, and of course I'm blanking on them, and they're in the UK, um, different different areas where they get into this sort of dance off only it's with their collections. And I just love that. It's like, um, they'll post, you know, look at this old thing. Oh, that old thing. I see you and I raise you a medallion. I mean, it's just amazing. So yeah, I guess there is room for that kind of thing. And it may drive some support. Well, and certainly museums and art galleries have content that's sort of reaches beyond their, their local audience. Right. And I think it's, it's great seeing organisations be playful because it, it links to their charitable mission. Mm-hmm. So museum Twitter in the UK is, is great fun because you, you get sort of the Twitter version of that of people oh, arguing about who's it. got the best bird. Who's got the collection. best stuff, yeah. Who's, oh, it's Who's fantastic. got the worst stuffed animal. Um, <laughs> but sort of, sort of that sort of playfulness of well, as well as saying, actually, we know some of the things aren't right and we can use that as a, as a chance to, to engage people. One of my favourites for that, the Vagina Museum um, <gasps> here in London on Twitter are absolutely brilliant and well worth a follow. Their One content. moment, please. I'll be right back. I'll say as I go to follow that immediately. Um, I must give a shout out to London Theatre. I got to visit London about five years ago with my sister and her family and um, – My sister and I snuck away from her kids and husband one night to go see Kinky Boots at one of the theaters. Nice. It was hands down one of the most entertaining shows I've ever been to. So I I have very fond memories of London theater. Yay. Maybe one day we can make a road trip and we can interview David. I don't know about a road trip, but I'm happy to get there with you. A boat trip followed by a road trip. (laughs) A very special road in the sky. There you go. I'll happily show you the sights. Sounds of London. Awesome. So you touched on these um, a couple of these elements a little earlier before I got off on my road trip in the sky, which I'm still kind of I'm still kind of going to be thinking about for a long time. Um, In addition to all to all your other work that you do, you also engage in a lot of training and coaching. And I was curious as to what are the things, the the subjects, the things that seem to spring up most that are the most popular that clients might ask for, contrasted with what are the things that people really need to know? Because often they're two different things. They're just two different things. I'm just putting it out there. Yeah, definitely. So I I get two two different groups for training. It seems to be at different ends of the spectrum. So I get a lot of people who are not necessarily fundraisers, but have found themselves having to fundraise for their organization. Um, so chief execs and volunteers and trustees who just want that nuts and bolts 
actually, where do we start? How do you write a funding proposal? How do you find these people in the first place? Just, we keep hearing about corporates, individuals and trusts. What are they? How do they work? What should we be doing? Because I think there can be that pressure to try and do everything. Um, and if, if you don't see yourself as a fundraiser, if you have never really had any interest in getting into that space, but suddenly find it a key part of your job description as uh, as the chief, chief exec or the only paid member of staff at the museum, then you want to know you're getting that, that best return of your time. So do quite a lot of, of that, and particularly on the proposal writing. How to write compelling funding proposals is probably the course I run most frequently. And then at the other end, you get more experienced fundraisers who are again are looking for the the new and the shiny. Yeah, they so things like behavioural economics, um, every new digital platform that comes out. That thing. How do we use that? How can we engage that in our fundraising? How do we use NFTs? How do we use gaming? How do we raise money in this way? And I think that, I mean, there's a need for that. Then there is, yeah, I think it's good for people to be assessing opportunities as new things come up. But the bit I wish more people would focus on, okay, I mean, it comes back to, to what you said in, in the introduction. It's the why as well as the how and the what. Um, and I think we, we spend so much time training ourselves on the, the practical side of it. And self, almost sort of being self-taught as we go through. The, I think there's a whole layer of theory that underlines that that is missing from a lot of fundraisers. And I, I think it is a bit like your driving test that we spend so much time focusing on the practical, which for 99% of the time is absolutely fine. But it's the time when things go wrong where you need that underpinning of that, that theory, that ethics, that what are the rules, the laws of fundraising um and i i think it's really interesting when we look at doctors for example and, and ethics and so most people can quote the hippocratic oath of first do no harm even if that is purely a tv invention <laughs> but if you ask people well, what's the hippocratic oath generally people people will get it and we have that in fundraising Certainly here in the UK, we have the Fundraising Code of Practice, which is upheld by the Fundraising Regulator. And Clause 1.1, right at the start, is all of your fundraising must be legal, open, honest, and respectful. But if you ask most professional fundraisers in the UK to complete that sentence, it's a, I think it's only a small percentage that where that would be instantly tripping off the tongue. Um, and I know this having sort of tested it in various sessions I've run on ethics in the past. So there's inter- I think it is interesting. We've got all this work there. And, and the downside is if people aren't familiar with the laws, charity law, the best practice, the fundraising co- uh, code of practice and the regulations, that is where we make mistakes because there are some archaic things in there. There are some quirky things in there that can trip us up. Um, we saw it with data protection here in the UK. Um when the data protection law changed, it actually didn't change that much, but all of a sudden there was a focus on it and people were saying, what do you mean we're not supposed to be buying data lists or <laughs> this, that or the other? What do you mean that's not been allowed for, for 10 years? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I would like to see more focus on, on that, but it's hard to see where that fits in given the pressures on, on fundraising. 
and I think linked to that is having that time for discussion about actually why are we doing stuff? It works, right. but is it right that we do it? What again, having those ethical conversations about yes, something might work in the short term, but what damage is it doing? Um, community-centric fundraising versus donor fundraising. Right. You sort of see these conversations going on in in blogs, in some parts of the sector, but again, there's, you don't really see many chances where we can actually come together and, and discuss it. You know, why are we asking for, degree, uh, for fundraisers to have degrees? Where can we challenge these things? Because I think where people have been self-taught or you learn by rote or you learn by just following how your manager in your first job did it we sort of take things for granted i think um so i I would definitely like to see more more questioning more evaluating of what we think is right and and being honest with ourselves about both the positives and the and the negatives of that Well, Kimberly and I have had that discussion before because we, the grant conference we attend every year, there is always one session on grant ethics. It's like a roundtable discussion. And I've been several times and it's, it's always a fascinating discussion because you can come and you can pitch like, hey, I've got a quandary. I'd, I'd like to kind of crowdsource this. And if no one has anything, the ladies who run it always have, you know, examples and it, it gets some very robust and interesting conversation. But out of a thousand attendees, you might have 10 people in the room. Mm. And I think, I don't think it's because people don't think ethics are important. I think it's because they're so focused on, but I've got to learn I've this new tech bucket. skill. I've got I've to learn to, yeah. this. I've got to learn that. Um, and so that's something we've been trying to talk more about ethics. We, that's what we've been, I think, in fact. Um, that's how we met mm-hmm. David. That's how we mm-hmm. met David, talking about ethics and yeah. did our grant ethics bingo session for uh, a conference you were doing. And uh, it's it's definitely something that needs to be discussed more. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think conference, conferences often struggle with that because you end up with just three or four speakers. From mm-hmm. So you, again, it's not, it's not a chance for everyone to come together and say, well, let's, let's shape this together. It's sort of, it feels like it needs, and, and what's, what's not the environmental summit. What's the, um, oh God, I might have to get, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, is it, oh, is it, uh, Davro, is that right? Or am um, I just making up words? Davos? Davos, Davos that's it. Or, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, we need a Davos summit. We need it in a really pretty place. Maybe the Backcountry Living Museum could, like, uh, host. I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, just thinking out loud there. But, uh but those, no, that's a very, that's such a very important discussion. And that, that is why Amanda and I were like, I know we'll make a game out of it and have prizes. Maybe that will get people interested. And it was a, it's a cheap thrill, but yet it's been effective. So I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not mad about it. But, well, no, you know. I absolutely does. And I, I think, but I think that's two different things, isn't it? So that, that is, here is ethics as it stands. Here are the things you need to be thinking about. And I guess, I guess it's that, that bigger thing of, how do we want this professional sector right. to move forward? Right, right. You know, yeah. Just just because something is best practice, just because something works, should we be doing it? What are those things that we never really drill into? We just take take for granted, and that's how things like not showing salaries, asking for degree requirements in job descriptions, oh, it's nice. perpetuate because we just we see it. We saw it was there the last time the job ad went out. We don't challenge it, and it, and it keeps going. And it's only it's when true. we say. Actually, that's that's complete nonsense. That's not right. Justify yeah. 
Tell me why you need a degree to be a, a fundraiser. And if the answer is because that's how we've always been doing it, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. That's, a, that's, <laughs> that's just that's a, my least favorite yeah. phrase in the English yeah. language, I think. True that. Well, hey, let's take a hard left turn from <laughs> ethics in our profession. And although, although um, I would argue that what we're getting ready to talk about involves ethics, but in a very different way. Oh, this is true. So burning question that I'm dying to know, and I know Kim really is too. So David, if you were a contestant on the Great British Bake Off, which week of baking would be your nemesis? Can we can we preface this while you're pulling your thoughts together on this grueling, burning question by saying <laughs> that all three of us are, are avid fans of the Great British Bake Off, known here in the United States as the Great British Baking Show because of some weird copyright BS. And um, if you have not given it um, a watch, you should. And I also, I do not bake. And I have watched every episode of the show available to me. I'm not a fan of cooking shows, but Kimberly kept talking about it and talking about it. And I thought, well, if Kimberly loves it this much, there must be something to this thing. And y'all, let me tell (laughs) you. We're here for it. It's entertaining. It's soothing. It's cultural. It makes me hungry for food I can't make in my own kitchen. Except it makes the, okay. me want to go back to London and eat some more. That's what it makes. Yeah. Except for those, except for those jelly things. And I'm sorry, I just I. Mm. <laughs> but the, okay. but we, they're we very all like pretty. All the they're very pretty. But that thing that looks like a brain, y'all can have that. <laughs> I salute your right to it. And um, so, David, what? What would be the week that would be your undoing? Oh, all of them. So I, I'm actually not. <laughs> I'm not a bad cook. So I do most of the cooking in our house, but baking, uh, my track record is pretty terrible. Well, that's okay. a whole different animal than cooking. Yeah. So when when I was at, at school, we had to cook. I had to make some rock cakes, and I, for some reason, I'd filled them with green food dye. But the worst part was I hadn't turned the oven on. I'd turned the grill on. So oh. I, I put these things in, um, cooked them for the for 15 minutes or whatever it was, pulled them out, and they were burnt on the outside, but green and gooey on the inside. That's just how I like my bake. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I was thinking about this. Um, I don't know if you follow this guy called Innovation Matt on Twitter, and he does quite a lot of these threads of um, sort of popular culture and if different characters in popular culture were, were different fundraisers. Yes, I love these. And I was I was thinking about that for the Bake Off. And so I reckon the the um the showstopper challenge, I mean I think that's that's your events fundraisers, isn't it? It's big, brash, yes. creative. Oh gosh. But they yes. don't really need to think about money and you end up they, they, I mean they are not financially justifiable those cakes. No. Yes. You've got um was it the, your signature bake which is your individual giving where mm-hmm. basically everyone's doing the same thing, but you're trying to bring some of that, your human story, your passion, um, and, and trying to bring Making that into it, it. And I think, I think us grant fundraisers, I mean, I think we're the technical challenge, aren't we? Where someone gives us a piece of paper that's got oh, God, barely yeah. any information on it. Nowhere near the amount of information we need to be actually, actually able to do our jobs. It's time. And then someone gets a bit crappy with you because only 11 out of 12 were perfect and one of them was slightly too short. Oh, my God. This is – I yes, all to all the things you just said. And then Paul Hollywood really? is telling us it's underproved it's and overbaked. Under-baked. It's underbaked. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, if you don't follow that gentleman, you said innovate. Innovation mats. Yeah, Innovation mats. Yeah, it's he's done a cast of all kinds of shows and it's – 
it just fills me with delight when I read them, I must say. <sighs> so, awesome. Well, David, it has been so much fun talking with you today. Um, we, the, you'll hear this, listeners. We, um, David's actually coming to us in the middle of a, of a giant storm, one of England's biggest in 30 years. So thanks for being calm, cool, and collective <laughs> and sharing all your wonderful insight. And I will never look at the Great British Bake off the same way again thank you well fingers crossed it hasn't just been lots of hot air <laughs> oh no not at all, not at all. No, it was a delight to talk to you thanks for joining thanks us so much for having me lovely to see you y'all i hope that you enjoyed our interview with david burgess and his clever ways as much as we enjoy talking with him what fun and if you would like more information about the training and coaching and other services he offers please check out his website apollo as in the god or also moon landing apollofundraising.com or you can find him on twitter at David Burgess FR and that's Burgess B U R G E S S. So your continued support is the reason that we're back for season 5. Please follow and leave a review of Fundraising Heyday on Apple Podcast that really really helps us get out to more people like you or don't be shy. Follow us along and share with your your friends and colleagues. It just helps grant pros and fundraisers like you find us. Thank you again to our Season 5 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We so appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website at dhleonardconsulting.com to download their latest free resources today. We're so honored you chose to spend time with us today and hope you tune in for our next episode in two weeks. Kimberly and I will share top tips for typewriting when you're facing dun, 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 the dreaded character count. We're here for you. We're here for you. Come on back. We'll, we're going to be, we're going to hold hands and do this together. It's going to be okay. We together, we will. Together. <laughs> See you soon, friends. Bye y'all.